0: Hello and welcome back to the Balcony View podcast. For more articles, audio articles and podcasts, please visit balconyview.substack.com. In this episode, I speak with Alexander Beiner about the power of storytelling. Across the conversation, we discuss how to use storytelling to make sense of complicated concepts and ideas. Using storytelling to weave together seemingly unrelated disciplines Story is a bridge between different systems, the darker side of storytelling, and much more. Alexander Beiner is a writer, podcaster, and facilitator with a love for making sense of culture, hosting transformative experiences, and exploring how we can evolve and thrive in the chaotic times we live in. He is one of the founders of Rebel Wisdom, a popular alternative media platform that ran from 2017 to 2022. ...and explored cutting-edge systems change and cultural sense-making. As well as publishing regular essays and articles on his Substack, The Bigger Picture... ...he is also an executive director of Breaking Convention... ...Europe's longest-running conference on psychedelic medicine and culture... ...and also co-created and co-facilitated a legal psilocybin retreat... ...called Regenerative Stewardship. He is the author of The Bigger Picture... ...How Psychedelics Can Help Us Make Sense of the World... Which was released this month and is available on Audible, Amazon, and more. I would highly recommend picking up a copy. Everything Ali writes is hugely thought provoking and has me questioning my worldview. This was a fascinating deep dive into storytelling and how it helps us make sense of the world. So without further ado, I bring you Alexander Beiner, talking about how we're wired for story. Ali, welcome to the Balcony View podcast. Delighted to have you on the show.
1: Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm very excited about this discussion today. And I want to start by talking about the fact that you use a range of different mediums and platforms. So you write, you podcast, you create videos. And across all of these, I've noticed a theme around storytelling. And so I want to start by asking you why storytelling is so integral to your work and what you do
1: yeah well I mean the first thing to say is that I love it and I think many of us love a story I have really vivid memories of sitting in school at the age of like six or seven for like you know story time a teacher will read or, or my mum and dad actually used to read to me as well and there's just something magical about it I think but aside from from that quality of it there's also there's there's a few reasons I think storytelling is so important one of them is that if we want to communicate ideas to each other, we generally do it through stories, and we actually learn this a lot of neuroscience to back this up that we learn uh, much more thoroughly through stories rather than just facts, right? So, I mean, which is of course why the news isn't just a, uh, a you know this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and here are the statistics. Uh, we of course we tell stories around stuff. In fact, we're just kind of completely immersed and wrapped up in stories everywhere. Our own stories, people we're connected to stories we tell about our culture so the world is in some way the social sphere is made of stories and so if we want to communicate or make sense of it or or you know hopefully change aspects of it we have to do that not exclusively but definitely a huge part of it is through through storytelling there's another aspect of stories which is that one of the most inclusive ways to communicate because it's cross-cultural every culture has stories it's part of how we're wired, kind of like storytelling animals in a way. And also the stories that we tell are, there's something more going on in them than just entertainment or even like lessons. There's something, um, so a Jungian view on storytelling would say that really what's happening in stories is that it's an external communication of a deep internal world that we all share and a kind of collective uh, unconscious that we share as well so um people might be familiar with uh, Joseph Campbell so was a famous mythologist he wrote a book called the hero with a thousand faces amongst others and his argument was that there's a monomyth Uh and really every story is even though it looks like it's got different characters and different settings it's really a way of exploring and explaining the process we go on as human beings to to grow and mature and go from a limited state of awareness and ability to a more expanded state of awareness and maturity, and Cowboy's view of it was was actually fairly masculine. It was very much kind of like outward facing, adventuring. But there are also um, and is criticised for that as well. And I think kind of partly rightly because it is it is somewhat limited. And I I did a piece during the pandemic. But it was, around, it was around myth and the importance of understyling, looking at the pandemic through a mythic lens. And one of the people I interviewed for it was a writer called Charlotte de Cam. Um, and she pointed out that there is a kind of, there's a female initiation myth as well, which is just as prevalent all around the world. But it, it's almost inverted where often uh, a character might start as a princess and then go through a process where she has to come down to the to the earth and a kind of a connection with the ground of reality and she said in nature you can be beautiful but you can't be a princess right <laughs> it's something about coming into the natural sort of i guess like humility of being a human being and being interconnected with things and from there learning and i think both men and women go through these different aspects of the types of stories we're living in our own lives sometimes we are on a kind of quest and going to achieve something and our culture really values that as well of you know start a business or do this or do that but sometimes we have to come deep into ourselves and deep into a connection with the people around us and that's our transformation so i think it's it's really on both sides and and it's really um yes not one or the other and yeah so just to finish that point that's one of the reasons I, I think storytelling is so important, because some variation of those myths is across culture. And it's almost like as soon as you start to try and tell a story, the idea if you if you buy into the monomyth uh, is that you are inevitably going to repeat this pattern, this like deeply encoded pattern of the way we understand ourselves in the world. And so that's really beautiful because there there are very few things that are that universal as a way of making sense of our lives. And so that's, yeah, that's one of the most important aspects of storytelling.
0: That's fascinating. And then I wonder in terms of certain subjects feel quite starved of storytelling. And so, you know, what does that do in terms of how we make sense of complicated concepts and ideas?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, well, that, I think what you just said is part of the reason why some some people have made a really great career out of writing like popular science books or you know books about history history is a bit easier because history is kind of a story right um, it's, even got, it's even got story in, in the word but um, I think what it does is it it sort of alienates if we, if we can't tell it in the form of a story like I just read a book about quantum gravity which is like really you know out there quantum physics um, really confusing really <laughs> but it was, it was interesting because A big chunk of the book was—it's by Carlo Rovelli. I think his last name is. Oh yes, yeah, Yeah, I love his work. He's great, and so a big chunk of the book was really—I mean, most of it was—it was was a very good book. Uh, I'd say like the first eighty percent of it was the history of physics up until where we are now, and it was like a story, you know, and it was fascinating, and it was—it was easy to follow and understand what was, what had been going on and why certain theories built on other theories and what was missing and what gaps are being filled and it also has all these characters like Einstein, these kind of brilliant people who are uh, different personalities and then when he got onto the quantum gravity bit, I was I was also driving because so I was listening to it on Audible but I got really lost and I was like, oh God, now I'm confused and he does say <laughs> you're going to get confused now because we don't really understand this either but it, it was a really striking example of I think what you're talking about where it was he couldn't really story tell around it he was he's great at using metaphors and you know such a it's a really great communicator of science but really getting into the weeds of it you if you're not an expert in that area you're inevitably going to uh, struggle with it and that's true of anything that's, that's true of a lot of the worlds I'm in like the systems change world the psychedelic world there's there are particular aspects of those that, that are very nitty gritty of any field right and it's very difficult to get people interested in that if you if you're not willing to set aside the nitty gritty and tell a tell a story that's authentic and true, but sacrifices some of the details because those details are just gonna get people confused. And then if they are interested, then it's like an invitation that they could go and really delve in and do their own research and etc. So yeah, well, it's
0: almost like how language can isolate and alienate. If we don't connect a story, we don't seem to connect to those wider systems. It sort of stays within that network. Like I have quite a lot of engineering clients and they'll say, yeah, yeah, but you just won't understand this. And it's like, but what about your clients that you're working with? Like, how do you want them to understand this? And maybe story is that bridge for us then that helps us to create connections with those other systems outside of our our expertise.
1: Yeah, that's really nice. I like that idea a lot that there's a kind of, it's like a translation between different people. Um, Different systems, which is really essential because everything should or or CAD inform everything else, and and I think that really drives innovation. If you know, if the engineering world can speak to the abstract art world in a particular way, mm. where they can understand each other, then it it you know can really improve both worlds.
0: Well, I love that you brought in Carlo Rovelli because I thought I was so struck by his work because suddenly it was so relational, and I never thought about relationship and physics being in any way related. I think he brings into play like that so many disciplines that we go to university to study one or two things. Suddenly they're so connected and there's interdependence. And you seem to do that in your work. You seem to weave together seemingly unrelated topics. And I wonder how you do that with story, because it's not an easy task to bring together psychology and philosophy.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time it just sort of um, happens in, rather than in an intentional bringing together. Or what, yeah, what will happen is, um, so, and actually this, I'm a, I'm a big believer in this idea called strategic intuition, which is uh, okay. coined by William Duggan, who is, unless he's retired, he was at Columbia Business School. And I, I was I read in my early 20s, I read an, uh, a review of his book, actually, that really just like blew my mind because he has this four... Uh, His argument is that creativity or innovation, really, or kind of has this four-part process. So part one is examples from history. So your brain, and he's drawing a lot of neuroscience in it as well. So the idea is that you have, your brain is basically like this gigantic library. Lots of it's in your unconscious, but you have to fill that library with information. So for example, Napoleon, he had read every single accounting of a military battle that he he could get his hands on in, in in military academy. So he would be in the library constantly. He'd read about like a battle from Hannibal to this, to that. So he had this huge library in his head. And during his first battle, he was like, you know, he was like, wasn't that high ranking, but he urgently said they had to move the cannons up to the top of the cliff. And his, his superiors were like, that's madness. We're not going to do that. But then they lost the battle and, and then everyone realized, well, had they done what he said, they absolutely would have won and for him what happened and this is Duggan's argument is that you have all these examples from history and then you have presence of mind so you stop trying to find a solution and you just stay receptive and open and basically mindful and the reason it really struck me when I read it is because I was uh, training as a mindfulness teacher and I thought ah that's that's mindfulness basically so the presence and then from the presence of mind you have what he calls a coup d'oeil like it's a strike of the eye in French like a eureka moment so you have this boom like eureka moment shoots into your conscious mind and it's just an idea it's like I've got to move the cannons or in the case of um, Google it was why don't we combine the AltaVista database with academic citations so you have these two existing elements that they they knew about the founders of Google they had all of the AltaVista because the internet was much smaller so they had it all downloaded and they had the algorithm of academic citations which basically says the most cited thing is number one and the least cited thing is at the bottom they combined the two and that was google that was like the best search engine uh he also uses this example of um picasso so picasso was like a fairly run-of-the-mill sort of impressionist artist talented but like nothing that innovative and then he went for as the story goes he went for lunch with matisse and matisse's daughter or niece had this african mask with her because it was a colonial france and it was really square and angular, and Picasso apparently just had this eureka moment because what he had was impressionism plus that kind of uh, shape, a kind of rigid shape, and then there's a brand new thing, cubism. Man. And then the final stage of that is that you have to have the courage to bring your idea into the world because, like Napoleon or or you know probably Picasso early, people are like, "What is that? That's mad!" <laughs> <laughs> and you have to you have to really be committed to to your own vision and your own intuition strategic intuition to be like no this this is the way to do it but you have to have those examples from history for any of it to work and so you really you have to have ideally not just knowing about the particular field you're focused on but having like horizontal or lateral information so for example if you are trying to sell computers instead of just knowing everything about the computer world you might also look at retail and other areas and you might also then look at like market stalls or even like the history of marketplaces or the history of trade in southeast asia or whatever it might be like anything tangentially linked can be incredibly useful and then so yes to come back to your original question usually what happens with me is that i i just i'm interested in a few different things and with an overall sort of direction of trying to make sense of very often pop culture but just also kind of bigger social issues and political issues and somewhere a comb- a new combination of existing things will click together and then the storytelling is part is basically the, the exercise of expressing to people why this makes sense and isn't just bonkers right because on the outset it could be sure. like kind of bonkers to combine particular things together but Yeah. If you have a sense, like a kind of pull of like, ah, there is a really interesting frame here that like, this gives us a really interesting new perspective on a particular issue. If we look at it through the lens of, yeah, whatever it might be. Yeah.
0: Well, what I'm curious about then is how do you, so it feels like you take a balcony view in your work, um, which obviously is the name of this podcast. And I think it's very easy to get stuck in our positions. You know, I might've trained in this field my entire life. So then how does one step out of that and see with that that wider lens that allows for all of those different disciplines to come into play? Because we might start just telling the story from one lens, the engineering lens or the English literature lens, and not see the the bigger picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's lots of different ways we can do it. I think um, a few practical ones are task switching, which is in the study of creativity and the neuroscience around it, is generally shown to be quite effective in helping us kind of get that broader stepping at kind of that moment of stepping back So task switching is just going from one particular task to doing something completely different like the the guys who make south park they, they did this documentary of how they make an episode which <laughs> is absolutely brilliant and it's mad because they, they do they. it in a week you know they're really topical so they have they write the episode in about a week and they sometimes are like handing in the dvd to the studio What uh, like Ah. three hours before it goes up right it's already been approved or whatever and in that he um, I can't remember if it's Matt Stone or Trey Parker but he's writing the episode and he's like stuck on something and then he just goes and starts building some Lego and he's got Lego all over his office and they're like really big like the Lego Death Star and like you know big pieces and his explanation of it was like well he's going from a mode where he has to figure out all the answers himself and he has to write the story to one where he has instructions that are telling him what to do and he doesn't have to think about it at all. It's also a different task. It's like packed on and you kind of make stuff together. And that's a great example of task switching. So having an attitude of the same attitude that we get when we switch tasks, but trying to almost embody that day to day, I think could be really helpful because it means we don't get too zoomed in ben. on a particular thing. And there's usually a feeling where we're too zoomed into a particular topic or or even in our own field or world, which is a little bit like, for me at least I like constrained and a bit like everything feels a bit harder and it's a bit dull and I'm getting bored and frustrated by it. So that's a great opportunity, I think, to do something completely different. Hey. Focus on something different, go for a run, whatever it might be. And then that also applies to, you know, the the things you're reading and watching, you know? So I like I try, I mean, to be honest, I mainly read sci-fi and fantasy books <laughs> I really, which i i read non-fiction <laughs> as well but um my my you know i just love i just love those genres and I, that's i'll often be reading that but there's a lot in fiction that that can really inform yeah ideas and the non you know if you're even in my case writing non-fiction fiction helps tremendously with that because it's yeah. a, it's imagination it's it's playing with ideas it's speculative so yeah being i think like it's good or it can help to be eclectic with your interests and just kind of challenge yourself. And, you know, I'd like to do it more, in fact, but, you know, the quantum gravity book was just because I, it was partly due for, to a piece I'm, I was writing, but also I was just kind of curious, you know, I read a couple of things about quantum physics a few years ago and I thought, ah, give it a shot. And I often find that's the things that really get me excited and interested and it's really refreshing. And I think that kind of cognitive refreshment basically is, is good.
0: And I love those freshing narratives that you're bringing up, like the Picasso example or Napoleon. they sort of saw it differently. I wonder though do do you think many of us get stuck in certain narratives that we're sold or we inherit or and um, we're socialized to believe you know like we have to do the grad scheme and we have to have you know a house and be married and have a certain number of kids by a certain age like it feels like some of us get stuck into these limiting narratives,
1: yeah, I mean I would say we all do by by nature of being human beings, right in some way we're all. I guess in a in a tension between clarity and and self deception, which is something that John Verveke, who's a cognitive scientist and, and a really brilliant thinker, he he speaks to this a lot about. Like a lot of the practices and philo- like a lot of the philosophical practices, like and you know people like Socrates, um, what they were teaching, were ways to become less foolish. Were ways to, to kind of and same with mindfulness and Buddhism. It, really, a lot of these a lot of these traditions are looking at how do we get over the problem of uh, our own self-deception which is like you cannot be a human being and not have self-deception so part of that self-deception comes from of course the stories uh, and ways of doing things that we've received but also we need some kind of basis right to function and we can't be completely untethered from our cultural and social sort of backdrop right and often when we try you know i guess the the not all of them, but some of the baby boomers in the 60s are a great example of that. You know, they really tried to really drop out, like Timothy Leary suggested, drop out of society, live on a commune, do it differently. And what they realized, almost almost every single commune failed. And <laughs> it was because they were just recreating the same dynamics they were trying to escape from, it just in a much smaller oh, wow. scale. Yeah. And a few of them survived, but it's really rare. And then a lot of the baby boomers uh what became our parents, basically, you know, if you're right in your thirties. So and, you know, became much more mainstream and became the mainstream after a while, right? So it's not to say that 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 kind of like really doing things differently isn't possible. I guess it's just like it's harder than it looks, right? We have to have I read something I just read an article just earlier today, and it was about creativity and the author said basically you need a box to be able to think outside the box right so you, so you can't you can't just like completely be like right we're scrapping all of our social stuff we're gonna gonna have completely change what the family looks like completely change what work looks like completely you know that i love the impulse for it and i'm really big into like new ways of doing things but i've also become increasingly sort of not, not disillusioned but but certainly like cautious because like, it's not that easy to scrap things, right? So, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it makes me think of the improviser mindset. You have to know the rules of improvisation in order to improvise. Yeah, that's fascinating about the, we need the box to think outside. And I'm curious right now about the impact of the internet on stories, because in some ways, I love that we're empowered to be, you know, the owner of our story and the narrator. And I wonder if there's a danger in that, because are we then disconnected perhaps from what's really going on? And are we maybe not aware of what's really emerging in the wider stories and the social systems that we're a part
1: of? Mm, yeah, that's a really important question. Uh, yeah, I would say like the, the internet is built, so the, tech, the technology itself is built from a particular belief about what it is to be, well, like what humans should strive for. And it comes from, of course, very individualist cultures, originally, and it really lends itself, especially social media, to individual expression. Of course, there are sort of social movements that happen online, you know, often quite good social movements, right, that that kind of uh, shift the needle. But they then very quickly become sort of, on the individual level, they become Something like a kind of identity badge, right, that people can can use, and it can become very shallow, basically. So, yeah. any real systemic change becomes sort of like, oh yeah, but I changed my Facebook or my Instagram profile pic, and that's my contribution. But then these deeper systemic issues that you know, something like Me Too or Black Lives Matter are pointing to, get sort of swept away in this kind of corporatized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now we're like, look, we're acting on it, but it's kind of surface level. I mean, Starbucks is uh, the example I, I always use because Starbucks are this outwardly extremely progressive company and really celebrate that and really, you know, pride themselves on that. And there's a whole unionization movement going on with Starbucks baristas in America. And Starbucks is kind of like crashing you know, down on it and closing shops that have union members. And how you know, uh, Howard Schultz, the CEO has said, I'll never allow a union at Starbucks, you know. I think it's a really it's a really kind of disturbing but good example of the way in which I mean that is the workers are doing the actual thing which these movements are pointing to which is a redistribution of power and wealth. Yeah. Which and I'm fully I, I'm fully for unions uh, on the whole and I think that that kind of I think it's a really healthy pushback to corporate power. But it's very interesting that a corporation that really prides itself on yeah yeah we're the most progressive ones out there <laughs> when push comes to shove and it actually comes to solving systemic issues not only do they not do anything but they actively try and work against it and i think that often happens with the yes yeah, kind of like you were saying so there's almost like a smoke screen around the individual the stories we're telling about systems uh on the internet and the real deep uncomfortable complexity of changing those systems and it's not black and white, like obviously they inform each other and like the social world does change like you know and i'm not sure if you've seen woodstock 99 the documentary on netflix really worth checking out where it's about when they tried to redo woodstock in 1999 but it was like a complete catastrophe and they tried to like corporate like gouge everyone for money like water was like 12 dollars, and they also booked like lip biscuit and corn and all these like and they didn't even know who they were they were like oh yeah the kids love these bands so it was like a very dark hardcore energy it all went crazy but what's really interesting about that is the oh i've I've now gotten so distracted thinking about the particular scene in that i can't remember why i brought it up it'll it'll swing back back to me but yeah yeah so just yeah to wrap that point up it's basically there's this kind of web of inauthenticity that runs through social media in particular that i think is driven by personal storytelling because that's what the, that's what the medium asks you to do and it's not really built for systems level deep complex sense making right it's not designed no. for that and so if if the game is designed if the game doesn't allow you to do that like monopoly doesn't allow you to be like i got to give away my houses uh, you can't it's kind of so it's all part of the rules it, you know the social media networks don't really allow you to tackle i get to the the root of these deeper issues very often
0: there's, there's a lot of window dressing i think across particularly social media and i think from that we're playing that virtue status game where, you know, we're sort of acting like, oh, yeah, no, I support Black Lives Matter. I put a black square up on my Instagram, like that means I'm doing something, but not really willing to look in the mirror and interrogate my own biases, perhaps, or, you know, be an ally or an advocate in another space. And I wonder about, you know, you said about the power and the money that it can potentially get redistributed in other ways of working. Are the internet and then algorithms on the internet keeping us trapped then within certain narratives that i guess order our current social system
1: yeah that's a that is a deep question i think i think largely yes but i think they they keep us trapped because they like tristan harris who runs the center for humane technology um and there's also in the there's a netflix documentary called the social dilemma he's sort of the main person in it as he points out it's a they keep us trapped in in what he calls a race at the bottom of the brainstem so they're kind of designed to keep us outraged, you know? So they're not necessarily pushing a pol- particular idea, although it has been revealed that certainly their social media companies aren't above being politically motivated in different ways, right? But it's not that they're necessarily... The algorithms, I don't think, are... Keeping us trapped in particular ideas that are designed, it's more like whatever i whatever gets us outraged and spending longer on the platforms gets selected for. It's like a natural selection process, and so we get we get stuck. You know, po- possibly also in in generally the way things are right now. You know, that doesn't get to shift because we're just arguing with each other very often. Yeah. So so and and I think it's a tricky one though because also. It's a, it's a big open question how much are the algorithms and the actual social networks to blame and how much is it our fault for being the kinds of human beings we we are collectively right yeah and it's a it's a tricky one certainly though i i think and i think a lot of commentators on our relationship with technology would point out that it's definitely made things worse it's made us more polarized it's made us our mental health worse you know this, there's 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 surveys done where people you know, even express, I wish it had just never been invented. So we have like quite large numbers of people being like, I just wish it wasn't there because it's kind of addictive and traps you and it yeah. becomes uh, difficult to avoid. Um, and so, yes, what to do about it and how to, how to sort of inject something into social networks that does allow us to imagine new possibilities, new ways of connecting with each other. Generally, what I've noticed and what I noticed through Rebel Wisdom is that those conversations are happening in smaller groups, on small Zoom calls where there's much more of a live interaction. So if you think about social media, it's not in real time. Something is posted and there's a time delay before you see it and respond. You also don't have human-to-human connection, which I'm not suggesting Zoom is necessarily human-to-human connection, but it's closer. So the medium, like I think it was Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message, you know, and this is a, yeah. a pretty like simple idea, but really true. It's like Twitter, Twitter-fies conversation, uh, Instagram, Insta- you know, Instagram's connection, <laughs> right? They do the thing that they're designed to do and you can't really separate the two out from each other. Whereas, you know, I do think Zoom and like kind of small discussion groups or inquiry groups happening on Zoom are more human. And I I, I mean, I know firsthand lead to much deeper, richer conversations, even around contentious political topics.
0: And I'm curious about sort of the impact on the individual and then what that looks like in society. So I came off Instagram and Facebook about two years ago and I wasn't heavily addicted. I maybe posted once every six weeks, but it was fascinating seeing the shift in my lens afterwards because you take a photo and before it was, oh, you know, this might look nice. Like, oh, actually, no, that was not so good. I just don't look at the world quite through that lens anymore. And even as someone who wasn't so present and active, it still was shaping the way I saw myself and then how I curated my story. Even in my own mind, if I didn't share it or not, it didn't matter. And I'm wondering how, because you've just stepped into Instagram and uh, how you're finding it so far in terms of creating your narrative...
1: Oh, yeah. Difficult, <laughs> difficult. And I've really held, I was really reluctant for months. I've not done it, but okay, I have to for book promotion. And I'm trying to find a way that is authentic to what I want to put out, which is mainly based on giving people something useful or entertaining, right? So something that is of value rather than just like, here's a picture of what I'm eating or you <laughs> should be walking down the street so it's like that i just find uh i can't do it and yeah so it it is difficult and that i certainly feel there's a kind of impossibility of like it feels impossible to be fully myself like i can certainly kind of be myself and bring my perspective i find it much easier to post work like post articles i've written or post something about breaking convention or you know because it's like ah this is like a professional it's like it's like linkedin but on instagram you know <laughs> but like hopefully with nicer images that that i feel i find easier but yeah i'm not i'm not a huge i'm not hugely it Basically, it's really early days but it is it's i feel like it's kind of a necessary uh kind of a necessary evil uh so i'm just in a process right now of um because i also want to do stuff on tiktok and I, i'm working with a guy to do some tiktok videos and that's also that feels a little bit better because i don't know anyone on tiktok so i can just do uh no one's going to see full seat, see it. Um, but I want to do something good. Like I'm trying to find, okay, how can I do something that I can stand by that I really like, but it's still sort of like the TikTok has this particular, very punchy style. Mm. And so it's like, okay, I want the style is really not something I love, but if I can get the content I want in there, so useful, educational, interesting content then that's the sweet spot. So that's what they're trying to figure out at the moment.
0: It's interesting you mentioned LinkedIn as well, because LinkedIn's becoming weird. It's more like Facebook for professionals these days. And yeah, I just find myself, and you mentioned this, I think, in your Christmas wrap-up article, you mentioned how you're feeling a bit meh about all the stories, whether it's in you know in the movies or on Netflix. And I really feel the same. There's just a lot of the same. And um, for me, what I've noticed is just a lot of focus on, on money. It feels like every other program on TV is obsessed with like insane amounts of wealth. Yeah, I mean, like, firstly, I'm bored of these stories, but also, like, are these stories are they keeping us small and trapped in a certain, again, a certain system and way of showing up in the world?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Like, there's, I mean, just firstly on that, the the mayor feeling. I saw, I still definitely feel that, and I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of people are because, like, there's this, you know, for example, Disney is churning out. Loads of Star Wars stuff that aside from Andor, which was phenomenal in my view, have just been all really crap, you know. And every mm. and even star, you know, even hardened Star Wars or Marvel fans are looking at those kind of franchises, which were like the biggest ones, like they're the biggest stories that we tell and feeling like uh, there's no magic in it, right? It's kind mm. of and all of Disney's remakes of like the Lion King, Little Mermaid, Little Mermaid hasn't come out. I mean, it could be a big hit, but like they've just done redone Peter Pan and like it's all just sort of like. It doesn't it doesn't have a kind of edge or challenge in it. And I think that's what keeps us trapped. I think if our stories don't challenge us and make us uncomfortable, like uh Joker was with Joaquin Phoenix a few years ago. That was probably the last film I saw, except maybe for um Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah. That was really amazing. But um love that. Fantastic film. So I I saw that there are those films, I just probably haven't caught them because I watch more TV shows now than films. But there's something about art has been very safe certainly since twenty sixteen or so because of the deep fear I think there's a bunch of things like a deep fear of social justice backlash is one aspect of it. So people are kind of play it safe. And then also just a change in a change in corporate culture as well. And so it just becomes hot like everything just starts to feel sort of safe. Right, And it's like, okay, yeah. this isn't really going to make me uncomfortable or challenge me. And, and in my view, art, not, not that it has to, but I think art should <laughs> ideally make us feel something that we haven't felt before in some way, even if it's a variation on something we felt. Like So, so that ambiguity and complexity of like, wow, I don't quite know what to make of that the end of the last of us which was just on hbo the which i was a big fan of the game that has that ambiguity which is really one of the best endings to something i've ever seen where it's um it's not quite as well done in the tv show as it was in the game but a sense of like that stays with you and that kind of you know this i I think great art should really and great stories it's like they stay with us and they they kind of act like travel does right or psychedelic experience where we're different afterwards, even just a little bit, you know, our f- like like you were speaking to before, you get that balcony view because you see something totally different. Like, you, you get it when you go to a different culture and you realize, oh, wow, the way I do things is just a way of doing things. And the people who live here have a completely different way of doing things. And it's equally valid and they get on with it. And it's, you know, it's like, that means that you can then expand or learning another language. Then you also get the, a new frame to see the world through. Yeah. So, so a lot of it comes down, I think, also to, to flexibility, being able to move between those different frames well.
0: Yeah. Because you made me think about the idea that the story imitate life and that terrifies me if that's true. Because I always hope that story elevates who we are and who we can be. And it gives us maybe a sense of what's possible beyond maybe our frame. Um, but right now, at least if you look on Netflix, it does feel like it's sort of imitating the values that are prevailing, which is it feels a bit sad, actually, that that's where our focus is primarily, and also what the young people are inheriting from us,
1: yes, definitely. At the same time, I do think art finds a way, right? Like, and what what then ends up happening is that there'll be a backlash. and from that backlash on the edges, on the edges of what's acceptable, on the edges of sort of uh, what's considered good art, you get new movements coming through, and I I think that's just inevitably what happens, right? So you get this kind of um, when the mainstream becomes stale, then you get like punk, or you get like you get you know lots of yeah, it's usually a reaction against something. New movements are kind of a reaction, and there's that's it's something I love about art and storytelling is that there's kind of there's like a pressure build up, and then someone does something or puts out a movie or writes something or does a totally new art form, which could now be AI art, for example, as a medium, and just blows everyone away. And it's like, wow, that's crazy. We didn't even think that was possible. And then that becomes something new. And so I, I do have hope. Like, and I think the worst was probably around like maybe 2018 or so. I mean, now it just feels stale, right? Like, like now the art feels sort of just kind of like everyone's. There's a wider recognition of, oh, this is quite crap. Like this kind of, yeah. This is there's just there. There is nothing like it's not there's so much content but it's so hard to find something of of a certain level of quality yeah and there are stuff I mean there is a lot of high quality stuff out there as well because it's just more of everything but there is a kind of I think a growing recognition from you know many people who are sitting like through Netflix or another streaming huh. service be like ah oh, you know so I think then that means. Yeah, something new will come up.
0: That's yeah, let's be hopeful. Yes. And when you said about travel um and how it gives us perspective, it made me wonder because your writing holds a lot of paradox and you deal with some quite edgy topics. How do you feel storytelling helps us to find alignment, even if we can't necessarily agree across some of these divides? Because right now we are very divided in many different ways. And it seems like we just can't even have a conversation about that topic.
1: Yeah, that's that's um, something I'm really interested in. uh, Is that like that question? Like, how do we how do we do that? Well, and I'll speak to some of the ways I found useful in a moment. But the when you read a novel, for example, you can read a character and be in their world, right? Which is something that is different uh, to kind of TVs and movies. Um, Like you can sort of be in you can be in someone's world, but there's a different quality where you're like almost in the mind of a character in in a novel. And the character can do awful things and be terrible in some ways, but you can empathize with them because you understand why they did what they did. You might not agree with them, but you can at least empathize with them and understand, you know, in the context of their story, why they did what they did. So I think that's very powerful. If we can tap into that kind of storytelling with one another. Um, and just give enough space to understand why from a perspective someone is doing what they're doing it doesn't mean condoning it it doesn't mean not having boundaries to you know there's bad behavior for example but it does mean that we go oh okay interesting this this makes this suddenly makes sense instead of being uh it humanizes right we're like ah okay if I were them then I might do the same thing or by definition you would do the same thing if you were them so that's one aspect of it I think is really important there's the empathy then there's also i mean just practically sometimes having a difficult conversation about like say an intense topic like vaccine or no vaccine right which is obviously raging less now that was raging very intensely during covid the story is actually not the level that it's helpful to go into the the content the experience rather it helps to go deeper into like an embodied sense of what you're feeling what you're both feeling and my friend sarah ness or friends sarah ness and joff crum we're right now running a course together called the art of difficult conversations and sarah developed this model which i love called content context and concern which is basically like in any conflict conversation or just really any conversation it's really helpful to check in with okay What's the content, which is the story, the stuff that the person's actually saying? So it might be like, oh, the government's done this and, and I don't trust this and whatever it might be, or or they might be saying, I really don't trust it. why why haven't you gotten vaccinated? Whatever it might be, all these different aspects of story. And then there's the context of the conversation, which is, well, what is this what is this conversation? Are we having a debate or are we having an argument? Are we trying to reach truth together? Are we just venting? Right? That's the lots of different contexts. And then there's a concern, which is, what is this person, or what am I concerned about? Like, and that's usually the deeper emotional aspect of it. Like, I'm you know afraid about this. I'm afraid about being controlled by a government. I'm afraid of not not being safe because not enough people are vaccinated. Whatever, it's going to be different for each person. And the level of concern is often the place where you get to when you really delve into what's really going on in the conversation. It's not that the other stuff isn't going on, but speaking to that deeper emotional reality is much more effective than trying to argue on the level of the story. Be like, no, no, your yeah. story is wrong. My story is more right than yours because of this. It just doesn't work. And in fact, it it often has the opposite effect. There's something called the backlash effect, which is that if you give people information that contradicts factual information that contradicts their position, they often double down on their position and believe it more. And there's lots of it's kind of a quite uh, ongoing studies to see, like, when is it true, when isn't that true, et cetera. But it's, what it does seem to be is that it's more true when you care deeply about the topic. And it doesn't really stand if, you know, if I said, like, yeah, if you were like, oh, olive oil was invented in Italy, and I was like, oh, actually, no, it was discovered in Greece. Unless you really cared about olive oil, you'd be like, oh, oh that's interesting, I didn't know that. But if it's something really close to your heart, like a political issue, then we have that kind of, like, pushback so it just doesn't work so so kind of getting to that deeper level is key and in a way that means going acknowledging but not getting caught in the story
0: yeah story can get in the way sometimes and um keep us trapped in our positions it makes me think say one of my colleagues jeffrey witherspoon he does a lot of work in dei and he talks about the fact that a lot of dei is failing because people are very stuck in their positions
1: what is dei
0: oh i diversity equity and inclusion Ah, okay But he actually criticizes it quite a lot by saying that actually a lot of the people who are delivering this work can be quite self-righteous. And his view is that no one no one changes through shame. No one changes through shame. And I think, yeah, with this sort of model you mentioned, it gets beyond the story and we can connect to those sort of human elements around actually, I'm scared or I'm, you know, I'm worried, I'm concerned and owning that as opposed to you're making me scared. Yes. You're making me worried. And I think that's huge. Just suddenly having that emotional intelligence to step into your position I think can shift things.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's it's a lot of stuff that in the sort of personal growth world or you know, workshops and kind of inner work, it's kind of taken for granted, like speaking from the eye, yeah. owning owning what's yours to own. It's very complicated though as well, because it's also very easy to hijack that those yeah. techniques, right? So if someone gets sophisticated at it, you can kind of hijack that language to get your needs met or get your point across as well so it's it's really <laughs> this is one of the reasons I I love like yeah difficult conversations is that it's so difficult it's really 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 hard and but it definitely requires exactly what you're talking about like a certain baseline level of emotional awareness that we can everyone can cultivate and then also a sort of um yeah even the, a languaging around it and an understanding of like simultaneously our own individuality and agency and how deeply interconnected we are so there's a lot to like simultaneously try and be aware of in a, in a kind of difficult conversation
0: mm. but I'm with you I, I, I really think we need to support difficult conversations I was working with a teen the other day and it got very edgy around gender equity and um, what made it safe was that we designed beforehand how do we want to be together and you know things like respect and likeness had come up and you know, all of that helps to create that box that you mentioned, within which then we can start to be outside of the box. But um, you realise that like so many conversations are happening on Twitter without any kind of box. There's no sort of rules for engagement. And then suddenly everyone's getting offended and holding their ground.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example there. and Yeah, I think that's that's so well said, because the it really makes a difference. Like, when when we've had a prior agreement of yeah, and like kind of the rules for engagement, it it's um it also creates safety, which is absolutely key to, to to it. In a way it's like it's a weird one because in a way we do want to feel uncomfortable, but once you feel unsafe, then we naturally go to the defensive mode, uh you know, or, all of us in some way. So but the, often those two things get confused, I think, especially in a lot of the the conversations around cultural issues, it's like the feeling of being safe versus doesn't mean not being ever not basically feeling safe doesn't mean you're not feeling uncomfortable it means you're actually feeling able to be uncomfortable like you feel safe enough to be uncomfortable and that's really the the kind of space that's conducive to to a difficult conversation but if we can't ever feel uncomfortable then everything just goes into the shadows and it or you know to your point about shame earlier as well it becomes like oh it's shameful to express what I want to express, therefore I'm not going to express it. But it doesn't mean you're not feeling it. And then the conversations just go underground. You have people talking to each other privately about issues that could be talked about collectively, but no one feels safe to do so.
0: Yeah, there's this model I use. I love it. It comes from CR Global, and it's a really simple model for change. It's essentially, there's a triangle. On one side, you've got primary, second side is secondary, and then you've got this edge. And the primary is where we are now, secondary is everything in the future. So, you could think about in terms of primary identity and then a secondary identity that you want to bring more of or, you know, your primary location and then secondary, your moving house. And we're always crossing these edges, Um, but it's such useful language, I find, because, you know, when you're working with a client and things get edgy, it is suddenly, it's a different kind of way of holding it. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the way we're working right now is trying to sweep things under the rug and make things nice and I don't think we're actually getting to the grittiness that we need.
1: Yeah, I love that that model. That sounds really, really useful. I love the simplicity of it as well. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it just strikes me as you're talking like it's, it's very difficult to bring this kind of stuff into workplaces because that container already has a very clear goal, which is to make as much money as possible, right? Even if it's explicitly not saying that, whatever company might be, unless it's perhaps a charity, right? but everything is in a particular system that is growth focused. And so if those conversations might threaten growth, then the system itself can't tolerate them. And then it gets, I think it gets in this tension because it's like, ah, oh, we have to talk about these issues, but we don't want to talk about them so much that it actually affects our bottom line. So that means that it's like, it's like a family system where something just cannot be discussed. Right. And so it's very, very tricky. Some workplaces do it better than others, definitely. And some teams do it better than others. But there is a philosopher called CT Nguyen, which I I, tr- I hope I pronounced his name right. I had to read it when I did the audiobook for the bigger picture. I, I quoted him a few times, and we kept having to stop. <laughs> I kept having to ask the engineer to to read it back to me, like play the YouTube thing of the pronunciation uh, many times. But he's he's brilliant, and he's written a book called Agency as Art. Um, I believe it's called. It's about games, and his his idea is that. Games are the art form where we get to practice different types of agency, whereas, you know, painting, we get to play with sight and music, we get to play with sound. Games is like, who do you want to pretend to be, basically? Hey. Um, and he points out that different game, he's, he sort, he sees social media as uh, basically a kind of game, you know, Twitter's a game. It's like you win by getting likes or retweets. Um, and you do that by saying the co- things that are controversial or things that your audience like. And so you just get trapped in the So basically, he calls that value capture. So the values of the game you're playing, like the values of your company or whatever it might be, capture your own individual values. And and so you might have an individual value in a workplace, for example, of, I really want to have a, a really honest, uncomfortable conversation about equity and inclusion that, and I want to be able to do that completely unfettered in a way that could really have a big impact on, Perhaps even what we do as a company, right? That, you know, yeah. now you might have that value, but the value of the system and of the company is like, no, we're going to keep selling widgets and digits. And we recognize that we, yes, part of the game has now become we have to have these conversations, but the values of the company will capture your values because you are just yeah. one person and you're an individual. So that makes it very, very difficult to enact change in any system could be a family but you know it's even harder with a with a embedded institution like like a company and i see people coming up against that all of us come up against that tension academics have it with like you know publish or perish it's like okay you might want to have a really you know use an academic might want to spend five years really 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 deeply diving into something and but actually what the what the system is asking you to do is is publish as much as possible as frequently as possible and that's how we get status, that's how you get status, that's how the institution gets status and gets more funding. So you then have this pressure captured by the system. And that happens to all of us. One of the biggest perhaps one of the biggest problems that we face right now and perhaps always But the
0: bigger the system, the slower the change. Like I often talk about so I've worked with couples, but I work mostly with teams now. And couples are like dinghies. They they do move pretty fast. Whereas, like a team is more like a cruise liner, it ah. takes longer to turn. <laughs> and so, you know, that is something I think we're working against. is that tension. But we are very fast. Our, our pace is moving quicker and quicker. And so, I, I don't know how our stories can hold that—that that need to go slow in order to really enact change.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, good, it's a, it's a lovely metaphor. I love that. The the, the the Cruise ship on the dinghy, or the kind of a big ship in the dinghy, yeah, yeah, because we don't have. Oh, I've, I've also just remembered why I brought up uh Woodstock 99 <laughs> <laughs> and it's related to this, it came back. yeah, yeah, it's a call, it's a shout out, uh, callback, yeah. Watching that, which is obviously 1999, part of what they talk about in the documentary is like the social beliefs and like the misogyny that was just like normal at that time. So, mm. there's a lot of sexual assault, a lot of groping, and it was like very like American frat boy kind of vibes, and they talk about like that beer American pie came out and it was just like, and I was watching, I was like 13 at the time uh, in 1999. and I was watching, I was like, oh my God, that is the kind of values that I was picking up as like, you know, a teenager and the world has changed for the better since then. And that's a really short amount of time, right? Certainly yeah. there's still lots more work to be done, for example, in, you know, equity and gender, but compared to even 1999, where it was just sort of this, it's kind of rapid misogyny it was just sort of like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what a dude. Now it's it's really really different, and so I remember being struck by like, oh, stuff does change on a social level. Like there there is a perhaps a positive aspect of social media is the is how rapidly things change, and that, and it's chaotic and mad, but perhaps there's a kind of um, supercharged order to it as well. You know, as as a kind of it's an evolutionary process, and so but equally. Some things I think do have to change slowly or and we do find it really, really difficult to to do that because a system well, I mean it's competition, right? So one one organization or group might want to have that real slow change, but then their competitors are going to sacrifice that depth for speed. And so then you're in this yeah. multipolar trap where you either have to lose and get out of the game or you have to play play the game. Unless people can start showing that that slow, deliberate Kind of process is valuable which it is for sure it makes more resilient people but maybe it's partly just a mindset shift of time scales as well
0: because there's just a lot of i think broad brush blanket storytelling around particularly some of these bigger issues and so i one of my clients he mentioned his company gave every woman in the company a pay rise and like some of the women we were like, well, you know, Michelle definitely doesn't deserve a pay. Right? She's rubbish. <laughs> yeah. And like that is, going back to that time I used window dressing, like it's lazy storytelling. <laughs> it's not really dealing with it. It's not
1: even legal. <laughs> I mean, that's mad. I th- I love how, how just sort of blasé and unsensitive that it's mad. It's mad. Yeah. It th- is. Yeah, that's, again, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, here's an issue. No time. Not going to actually get into the, the concern. Just think, yeah. make it go away. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: And we want to appeal to people to pretend like we're actually doing something because we want to create that retention, but we're not really going to do the thing. And I think many of us are at fault in that. You know, we're not really willing to do the work. We just do the surface level stuff and we show it on our Instagram or whatever. And yeah, I, I wonder how we get that depth into ourselves through our stories again.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, um, one of the things i interested in and uh, talk about in the book is the the need for understanding the difference between something that's complex and something that's complicated um this is daniel schwachtenberger is a kind of mathematician in system series he's, he's talked about this quite a lot and this, this is a big part of the issue when we're trying to change things anywhere is that we confuse complex problems with complicated problems so like a complicated system is like a car engine where everything is connected to each other it doesn't interact with anything around it it's like wrapped up in a hood and if something goes wrong, you just have to figure out which bit went wrong. So this company, for example, that you just, example you gave, they were looking at the problem as a complicated problem. They're like, oh, what's wrong? Oh, uh, women don't earn as much money as men for doing the same job. Okay, well, we'll just give all the women more money. That should solve the problem. But actually, they're dealing with a complex system and a complex system has many different individual parts that interact, but then create something more than the sum of its parts. And also is constantly shifting and changing. So actually, there's so much depth and movement and change in those bigger questions, like, you know, equity questions. And there's so many moving parts that if you, like, we have to, in a way, if we can embody complexity, then we're, we're much better positioned to start solving those complex problems and, and, and interact with them in a really different way. And through, sto- you know, storytelling wise, I think that also means like telling stories that honor complexity. And often there, you know, a lot of good stories do that where there's no good guy or bad guy, you know, someone's motivations are, they're complex. It's like, yeah, I mean, where are they are coming from? You know, you have these really, the characters and the story and the way it moves isn't a linear kind of progression. It's, it's, you know, it's got a direction, it's fluid and shifting. That's, you know, that feels real. And authentic, sure. right? Yeah. yeah, I
0: mean, I, I crave that kind of storytelling. I think we need more of it, but also for Paradox, like the fact there's not, you know, a right or a wrong, or a good or a bad. And I think we've got too much of that. In terms of complex stories, what are you most interested in right now? What are you curious about?
1: Well, I'm watching Succession at the moment, which I think is, a really, <laughs> How great, is it? really great. It's really great.
0: Everyone's told me I need to watch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So that I'm was to say, curious. I was uh,
1: until about a month ago. I had only watched a few episodes, and I I caught up on it. Uh, and i'm I'm writing a piece on it, so I'm like kind of like really delved in it's very very good, yeah, and I think it has that complexity to it, which is which is one of the reasons since I think it's been so successful and also, yeah, what else i mean I, I just on a personal level, I'm really interested in basically yeah creative nonfiction, basically trying to really like explain not explain complexity because it like, hasn't been really possible to do, but <laughs> <laughs> trying to let's say honor a complexity and try and find different ways of going as deep as possible into particular topics and trying to find new ways to see them while at the same time keeping it accessible and interesting and like trying to hone that craft more and more that that for me is is a lot of fun and something that i find like personally professionally really deeply meaningful it's like um like the form of i mean i sort of become i guess like an accidental essay writer an essayist when i was writing novels for or trying to write novels for a long time and so i kind of i'm embracing that more and more and now i'm really kind of just fascinated about okay well that as an art form rather than just a way of explaining ideas where could where could i slash anyone else who's writing essays really push the push the medium you know and, and try to find new ways and yeah so that's that really excites me as well. well.
0: Thank you so much for this glorious conversation today, Ali. It's fascinating. Thank you again. A huge thanks to Ali for that fascinating deep dive into storytelling. Here are my key takeaways. We are all in a tension between clarity and self-deception. And part of that self-deception comes from the stories we inherit or tell ourselves. Yet we also need these stories to help us make sense of the world. So whilst we may want to scrap certain stories and start again, we also need a box to think outside of the box. There can be a disconnect between the stories we tell ourselves and the reality of our lives. And the medium we use can have a big impact. For example, the stories we tell about who we are and what we stand for on Twitter might land very differently from how we communicate these views in person, by email or on Instagram. To quote Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. Great stories should challenge us and make us uncomfortable. They act like travel and should give us a new frame to see the world through, to help us to see, think and feel differently. Sometimes our stories can block our ability to lean into another way of viewing a situation. When we get beyond the story, we can get to our feelings and concerns around the issue, as opposed to staying fixated on the issue itself. It serves the relationship and helps us to reach alignment as opposed to fighting for agreement. Thank you for listening to The Balcony View. For more articles, audio articles and podcasts, please visit balconyview.substack.com. And please share and subscribe to spread the word. Thank you and until next time.